for you. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Such a beautiful love poem. I love it. Here we go. You ready? I was in pain for a reason, had no one to tell my tale. So distraught and broken hearted, as a man I felt I failed. I was desperate for a listener, but I couldn't find an ear. Need someone to tell the story of my pain and inner fear. So alone, no, so lonely, in the mirror I did look. Saw a picture of a tortured soul. Deep inside I had a book. Need someone to turn the pages. Need some shoulder for to lean. It was like no other cruelty. Seems the whole world is so mean. I was somehow separated from what matters most of all. And only God knows how I miss them, oh, my baby boy and girl. But I'll fight on through this nightmare because I love them both so much. They have put a wall between us, but our hearts will always touch. Mm. Well, that one? <laughs> <coughs> uh, we Smoke might start. I'm, my name's Drac. I've been asked to sort of convene this Q&A and already I can sort of see the risk associated with this job. Um, <laughs> What I thought we might start with is just really getting people's names again so actually you can direct questions directly to people. Mm. And um, so maybe if people just introduce I'm Ashley. James. There's a lot of Nicks, so we'll call Nico. That's Nico. Just Nico's out more. there. I'm Ty. David. Arthur. Okay. So um, Who are the way you? And Drav. Um, look, the way we make... Uh, because this is being recorded and... Uh, so we, uh, we might also continue with the roving mic so that once we get into Q&A, um, we'll actually uh, pull up your hands for questions and I'll get the mic to you so actually it can be recorded and you can hear it. Um, I've been... <sighs> this, the suggest, suggestion to me was that I ask a question and then that gives you a, a sort of some time to actually start framing what you may be interested in. in uh, so Excuse maybe those who haven't... Introduce, can maybe introduce themselves now. Can you say your name, Nico? Oh, hi. Um, I'm John Jacoma. <sighs> introduce yourself. Sorry? Introduce yourself. Nicholas John. QC, LLB, PhD. <laughs> Self praises no recommendation, but I am good. Okay, I might throw this, this first question out, because I've seen this, I've seen this uh, production twice now, and I also saw it in, uh, in a development phase. And both the subject matter and the improvisational nature that you're actually using within the production and, and the creators and performers are basically coming from both sides of this system. I'm just wondering what each of you are really wanting us or me to actually get from this show, from this performance. Mm. Hopefully it gives people more of an understanding of what's available to prisoners when they first get out of jail. Oh, there isn't much. It's very limited on resources and very limited on a lot of things. Um, and education in the jail system, where they do education instead of... Because you don't get paid enough, enough money while you're in jail to do education. You get a very limited wage, therefore you can't afford to buy cigarettes or you can't... Uh, they stop smoking now, but you can't afford to buy your tea and coffee and all that sort of stuff. So, therefore, everyone works. And with that, they don't go and do education. Whereas it should be the other way around. There should be a high-paid education. And that goes on performance of their grades. If they've done their grades and they've, they've passed all the and done, done their certificates, they should be paid accordingly to that. Mm. Is this the same for all of you? Or what? Um, for me, I was institutionalised from when I was 11 
till 1994, I was more inside, inside um, institutions than I was out. You know, and I thought, you know, I labelled myself that I, this is the, my way of life, this is, you know, I'm not good enough. But I heard from other people, I heard from other people that lived similar lifestyles to myself that weren't living that lifestyle anymore. I experienced some hope, maybe something could be different for me. And because um, I labelled myself and I felt as though the community labelled me too, once a crim, always a crim. Well, for me, get in, in this play, in this play, you know, for me to be true to the community, it's a lie. We, for me, I'm a human being, and we all, you know, this is just my opinion and my experience. You know, I'm a human being, and I've made some mistakes. The best thing I ever done is ask for help. You know, and um, as a result, I'm a, I feel as though I'm a responsible member of the community now. I'm a human being, you know, and um, I'm feeling emotional. <laughs> I'm six foot two and a half, saturated in tattoos and done over ten years in adult prisons and, and I'm a sook. <laughs> We've got a box of tissues for your mate, it's all right. I mean, I, I might yeah, be right. you know? can, can I just follow up, because you, that's a good entree into what I wanted to say. He's emotional, I'm emotional too. I've been out of prison 33 years. Um, I went once, I went for a, what they call a fair whack, five and a half years, and it wasn't for jaywalking. Um, my experience and his are very different. I didn't go to prison as a kid, but we shared that experience. And why I'm here and what I'm about, I'm a bit confused actually, because after 33 years, I'm still not sure what this word assimilation means. I'm still not sure what rehabilitation means. I think I'm rehabilitated, but there are so many different ways that society uh, reminds me that I'm an X, 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 whatever, all these labels. Um, and so I'm confused as to, like, who, who I am, for one. When do I become a fully-fledged, unconditional citizen so I don't have to carry that shit around anymore? Because the other side of the coin is I carry it around anyway. And... Part of being here is another way for me to try and sort of get that monkey off my back, um, deal with the emotion that he speaks of. Because I, I reckon um, anyone who's been through a prison experience is traumatised in some way or other. And you need to heal from that. And so my journey post-prison has been a journey of trying to heal. And this has been another way for me to do it. Just yeah. like to acknowledge that Arthur gave up a um, great holiday to do this to do this show. Actually, it was a big deal. You've had that planned for some time. Your 60th yeah, birthday. Yeah, with my best friend to trek from Alice Springs across to Broome, across desert. You know, spiritual expe <laughs> healing experience. But this has been, yeah. a, you know, that can wait. I might, I might jump in there. From, I guess coming from an artistic perspective, um, I don't often speak about what I hope people will get. Uh, I, I don't try and avoid it. It just doesn't come into my mind very often. But, you know, I, the idea was to create a work uh, that was created and performed by people who... artists and professional artists and people who'd been through prison. And so, really, the sort of methodology that built up around making it sort of had to sort of... We had to share... We had to have a shared experience and had to sort of reflect all of our desires, really. And that was... That's how the work grew, was finding a way through it 
that all people involve somehow are getting off on it in sort of in a meaningful way. And uh, so that, what they've both spoken about so far is sort of some sort of vulnerability, I think. And I think that that's what the artwork is reflect, actually. The artwork is quite vulnerable. It's quite a big risk. Um, it's sort of... It's not unsafe, because we've sort of tried to build a safe feeling in it, but it's... Um, the artwork almost can get emotional <laughs> sometimes and sort of crumble a bit or build itself up again. So I think... Um, and I don't see that work very often when I go to the theatre, which can which is really taking that risk of actually falling down and or really going somewhere really beautiful. And, and as you know, Draf, um, you know, because you work with improvisation so strongly that it requires a certain leap into that territory, into that unknown territory, to allow it to go into that, that very particular special place. I mean, if we'd made a very polished play um, and... Yeah, in a way, I think it is. <laughs> but if we'd made a very, you know, everything was planned very nicely, I think it would be very hard to achieve some of the things we achieve in this. I don't know if you realise, but a vast majority of what we're doing is improvised. So I, I haven't ever measured it, gauged it, but it's probably somewhere around 70% of what we're doing is improvised. Yeah. Um, so I hope that the artwork, the sort of the work itself is, has this vulnerability and people feel that and they can engage with it in the same way that they might engage with um, the people who are in this work. And the vulnerability for me is really important, um, seeing these three-dimensional people who are not maybe what you th see in the media. They're, real, they're live, they're in front of you, they have stories, they can talk, they write poetry, beautiful <laughs> poetry. <laughs> so these things are transformative for all of us to do together and I hope, I hope for the audience that happens too. So in an artistic sense and a sort of social sense, I, I hope those, that vulnerability is shared across those two, those two realms and it matters, I think, that, that, that artwork can be vulnerable and dangerous. I mean, um, and of course, it matters that we can be vulnerable around each other too. Hmm. Let's hand it over. Is anyone oh, and it should be funny. Um, <laughs> I also want that, and I think we got that sometimes. Yeah. So, does anyone <laughs> want to ask a question? Um, you, sorry, you spoke about um, seventy percent of it being improvised. I mm. just wondered how the process started for it to have some sort of shape. Um, <laughs> the very start of it was actually in me in a studio in Poland. I mean, the first meeting, I mean, it was in my head. I worked as a parole officer. I don't know if you all know, I'm a theatre maker and former parole officer. Um, so I sort of, once I got sort of loose of that work, I started to really struggle with the sort of ethics and aesthetic. How do I do this? Um, and so I started improvising, really. And I might let, I mean, I'd there's a lot of improvising involved. I might let David speak a little bit about how the actual structured script came about. But we uh, play. Over to you. <laughs> um, well, we, yeah, we played with form as well as with the, you know, within the form that we've made here. <coughs> There's plenty of capacity for me. Um, but uh, in terms of making decisions about the form, um, I think... There were, you know, these, like the Raph was saying, the various development showings that we had last year, 
and we tried, we, and we always responded to the rooms we were in, so in a way they defined this show as well. Um, and, you know, we, things like then decisions about how you arrange the seating, etc., inform the form as well. And I guess that might be part of this sort of trying to activate you as members of the, the community that are indeed responsible for parole. Um, and so, you know, we experimented with that. In, in the, the first sharing I was involved in was at the Tower Theatre, and we really didn't like the room at all. So we were finding ways of sort of boxing ourselves back so there's this sort of, I don't know if you know, at the Malt House, there's these sort of tower theatre. And then there's this kind of funny little storage area and then a rehearsal room called the, the bagging room. And we ended up right at the far wall of the bagging room with the two sets of doors open so that this tiny clump of people could see right through. And then we would shut off the doors and they would watch via monitors. And that would allow us to get this intimacy and openness when I was doing the improvisations with the various participants, they were a lot less self-conscious when it was private, even though you could see and hear everything. So we could kind of go a lot deeper and it's only because the guys have done a lot, we've done a lot with them that we're able to, you know, to be so free in front of you. And then I guess, you know, things like lighting comes in and you you try and find ways of denoting privacy and moments of, um, you know, you'll see the jail yard, you'll see, in your imagination, we would hope that these images would come to you of, um, you know, sort of stuffy little neighborhood justice centers from now, and then some kind of amazing futuristic possibility, which is, you know, the sort of wild colors and the sort of, you know, shiny furniture, this kind of thing. And that you'll you'll have a set of triggers that trip you off into these uh, sort of other realms away from those kind of notions we have at the moment of uh, sort of dirty cells, dirty horrible offices, nasty stuffy people who are just sort of closet psychopaths and brutes who are using this opportunity um, to you know torture and um, um, hurt and bully fellow members of their society you know at the first opportunity they've got. But in, again, in here it changed because, you know, we had this new opportunity, much bigger room, and these sort of scrims were new to it, and James's new discovery of the inversion chair. We, we were just trying to always let the idea grow and let that be expressed in, in the way it was staged. Um, and then, you know, in terms of which scene goes where, um, that, that has always been pretty set. We, the idea was with the sort of filthy talk that we have in that room was us kind of gearing up for the worst possible thing we had to talk about. The, you know, we'd go to our most nightmarish um, crime uh, interaction <sighs> and then try and sort of gee ourselves up to it. And it's something we kind of learned from the guys, from their stories, from and, and women, from their stories of being inside, of how you kind of, you sort of got these, like, you, you, you stand your ground. You know, so the, the officers, these sort of nerdy bureaucrats, are trying to gee themselves up into, you know, this state where they can deal with talking about anything. So that had to come first in order to, for you to show the stages of sort of preparation for being completely open to any possibility. If we show you the darkest thing, there can only be possible pathway towards light. Um, 
so that's a bit poetic, but um, anyway, there you go. You've got this sort of morphous blob. Yeah. yeah. Um, look, thanks, fellas, for a wonderful show, wonderful play. Congratulations to all of you for being part of it. Um, provided a real insight, I think, to all of us who haven't been exposed to certainly what, um, what's been presented here tonight. And particularly to John and Arthur, my question really is directed towards those gentlemen. Um, depending on who you talk to, people will tell you that two out of three or three out of four people who go to prison go back. It seems to me that one of the compelling reasons why people might go back is immediately upon release from jail, people are released back into the environment that put them there in the first place. So to break away from old associations and old habits is tremendously difficult, as well as where have you been for the last couple of years while I've been in... I've been in jail, you know, I want a job. Well, you know, bad luck, fella. Really hard to get a job. Ty touched on housing, seems to be really hard about housing. But from John's perspective, someone who'd been institutionalised for quite a while, and seems to me from what you're saying that you went back a number of occasions, Arthur went back once, you're able to articulate why it was that you, in 1994, when you finally walked away from jail, you never went back. What, what was, is there any singular thing, both yourself and also Arthur? Uh, uh, for me, um I was released in 1994 on four years parole in Perth. I'd done like seven and a half years for armed robbery on a bank and um, it was all drug related. And I was released to a drug and alcohol rehab. I stayed there for 10 days and came back to Melbourne. And I always had that fear, you know, but I'd had enough. But I'd had enough a lot of times, but this time I'd had enough again. But it was more entrenched, you know. I always wanted to live my life differently, you know. And, um, yeah, I ended up back in Melbourne and I was using drugs, you know, and I ended up, you know, I ended up in a detox. I can't stop on my own, I need help. You know, I ended up in rehabs and I started listening to the simulator. I lose my son and his girlfriend. You know, <laughs> I started listening, you know, to other people's experience and, and I got some hope that they could live life differently. And so I started practicing that, you know, and um, and as a result, you know, I had a rehab romance in a rehab, you know, you're not supposed to do that, I'm not perfect, you know. <laughs> and I had a son who's sitting up there and I had another son and I started to live life differently, you know, and I started to become responsible like most of you people, you know. It's a conscious decision by yourself. Yeah, but I... Sick and tired, sick and tired. Yeah, I was sick of, sick of being sick. You know, and it was, you know, but I asked, the best thing I ever did was ask for help, you know, and and what I said about being 10 years sober and clean, I used to love being out of it. I've done, you know, but now I'm, you know, someone said to me, are you happy to be clean? And I wasn't. But I asked, because I felt a lot of guilt and shame of action I'd done in the past, you know, how can I set that stuff right? So I listened, I had a mentor. And I asked him, I said, I'm not enjoying being clean, you know, because I was thinking about it a lot to make myself feel better. So I asked, so he expressed, because I don't know how to make amends, you know, to people about stuff, you know, I don't know about that stuff, you know, because my life was where, when and how. What have you got and how can I get it? And if you haven't got it, you're a goose. And I'll move on to the next person. If you've got it, oh, hello, buddy. You know, that was my life. But now I was asking about having to feel good in myself. Cause I, and then he, he was able to express his experience to me and I put that into practice. And um, as a result, as time went on, I'm happy to be clean. I stayed clean for my sons, you know. 
and um, for nearly two years, then I relapsed. Um, and um, I ended up in a detox again. Help! I needed help to stop. I can't do it on my own. Well, that's my life and my experience. But I've not, you know, and I am 10 years sober and clean on Saturday, this Saturday on the 30th. You know, um, and I'm happy to be clean. You know, I'm happy to be clean. I, I love being clean. I used to love <coughs> being out of it until. No, but I've done no crime since the last time I used drugs. How does that work? I went once, and uh, prison's a, a paradox. Um, by the way, I'm a criminologist. I'm really rehabilitated, you know? I've got a degree to prove it. And sometimes it feels like shit. It feels like it counts for nothing. It, and the degree, the experience, like what about the experience and the degree? Put them together. Aren't I valuable? I can't get a friggin' job in the correctional, correctional system, thank you very much. That to me is the measure of where society's at and, and, and what's happening at the moment with parole scares me, frankly, because we're going down the wrong pathway and any criminologist on the pl planet will tell you that. So why are they doing this, these... These, these idiots. Uh, it makes me angry. Um, but prison's a paradox. It can save your life. And, and for some people, it does that. You could be one hit away from death and you go to prison, into the cocoon, as I call it, and the caterpillar on the streets of Footscray, where we live, <laughs> turns into a butterfly sometimes because they've got three meals, somewhere to sleep, some mates. They're somebody. And some of them get clean, actually clean. They even, I've even, um, even though cigarettes are now um, uh, prohibited and they've become bloody contraband, would you believe, in prison, you can get charged for having a cigarette. <laughs> Not out here, but in there you can. Anyway, um, and people can get clean, right? But then the, the butterfly that, em uh, that emerges in that cocoon comes back out and turns into a friggin' caterpillar. So it can save you, but what does it save you for? To survive in prison. That's not what it's meant to do. You're meant to survive outside. To answer your question, for, for me, it was the most soul-destroying experience. I never accepted it. I fought it all the way. And the harder I fought, the more it damaged me. To the point where the person I became most scared of was me. My potentiality for bad things. And I wasn't a bad person, but that part of me that was susceptible to uh, all of those evil things started to, to give in. And I got to the stage where, like some of us, I seriously contemplated killing myself. And some would call what happened next weakness. I don't give a shit what they call it, because it helped me. I found God, or God found me, through reading a New Testament in a Pentridge prison cell, and it kind of sounded good. It made some sense, even though a lot of it I didn't understand. But I made a decision to try and follow that as a precept for life. And I've been trying to follow it ever since. And I, I really believe that's what's kept me from going back. Hi. Thank, thanks, everybody, for being open, really honest. Um, I would like to ask what it's like to see the dramatisation of prison on TV, particularly shows like Orange is the New Black. What's it like watching those things and how do you feel about it? 
Good question. Quite fast. Can I just have a turn? Can I have a turn, John? Go on. You know, is that music going? There's a saying that the man complained he had no shoes till he seen the man with no feet. There's someone always worse off than you. Well, I'm what's called a dinosaur of the prison system. When I went to jail at 19, after a month in the yards, I complained about the food and they sent me to a place called Hates Division. And that's the only time in my life where I thought I was going to die. Because they were belting me with big battens, prison officers. They were kicking <coughs> me, they were calling me a wog. They were making me break rocks. For three mornings in a row, they ran into my cell. I was black and blue. Bruises all under me here. This bone was out in my hand. I couldn't break rocks with two hands. This laser made rocks with one hand. So there's always someone worse off. And people like me, the dinosaurs, who experienced pantries when it was prison when it was prison, you know, and then Arthur talks about his time in prison, or John talks about it, I think to myself, jeez, you know, what would they feel if they went through what I went through, you know? When, when I don't like it, we didn't have TVs, no swimming pools, you know, the food that they're having now in the 80s compared to the 70s. And then you get labels, labels, you know, you say, with respect to Arthur, isn't it quite an intelligent man? I'm a criminologist. What's that mean? You've read some books? True. Then ask some questions really and you answered them, did you? So that makes you a criminologist. Very Sorry. You made a statement. What was that? I said I'm very intelligent. Oh, well, self-praise is no recommendation, Arthur. Well, you said it, so... I'm you're very intelligent. I don't patronise you when I say that. I say that wholeheartedly, but you're yeah. ten steps behind, mate. Believe me. Now, let me finish. Without your abrupt rudeness, we don't get on it, Arthur and I, because we're on different levels. I'd done jail when it was jail. I experienced it, the tough times... I've had QCs, you know what QCs are? Queen's councils, barristers, lawyers tell me to plead guilty to offences. And I fought trials in the county court, unrepresented, and juries have acquitted me. If you go on the internet, you'll see me, who I am. Have you seen the movie Chopper? I'm Neville Bardos. Vince Colosimo played me in that movie. I'm infamous. I'm not here to. I'm not proud of all this, but I'm who I am. Jail and poetry, and and the experiences people have when they come out of prison, it's heart wrenching. It really is, and all they do is create monsters. If I was given a chance when I got three months in prison, the first prison term, a fight at the football at Waverley Park and the magistrate, racist magistrate, gave me three months jail, put me in there, and what they'd done was introduce me to all the crooks. We changed numbers and I started associating with them on Flinders Street Station in the Sharpie days, 75, 76, 74. If they had grabbed me by the ear and taken me for a walk around Pentridge, I would never have committed crimes again or associated with them people. Scared Straight Program, back in Tirana. Say again, mate? Back in Tirana, I was never in there. No, I never yeah, went to no, Tirana. I had the scared, scared Straight Program. 
Did they? Well, That's right, I heard that. Yeah, they never done that to I me in 74. And the success rate was 90% didn't re-offend. Yeah, that, oh yeah, I agree. Whereas and I, 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 I went to Toronto. If I can just Saturday, say this before you... they not throwing me in Pentridge. Yeah, if I can yeah. just say this. You know, you know, if, wish I get every magistrate and county court judge get an opportunity if they send someone to prison for the first time. Make it the last, last, last resort. Because what you're doing is creating criminality. They'll associate with their new friends, the new, they'll go in there and, geez, it wasn't too bad, we were in a dorm, there was 20 of us, we were mucking around, laughing, joking. Wasn't that bad, to be honest. Mm. But if you play up in there, it's a different story. Mm. You know, I thought I was really gonna die. I started thinking about killing myself, you know? And as I told the boys there, a song on the radio, um, by Van Morrison, there'll be days like this sort of made me snap out of it. But um, yeah, I'm in the law books. I set precedence in the High Court of Australia in Canberra. 1984, the Queen versus me. I spent four months in custody, wrongly and unfairly convicted, according to three judges in the Supreme Court in Victoria, five judges in the, Supreme, in the High Court of Australia in Canberra. You know, I didn't get compensated. Why shouldn't I be compensated? Lindy Chamberlain was compensated. In 94, in the county court, police planted drugs on me. It's gospel on my children's life. And I was told, how are you going to beat this? Eight police are going to give evidence that they saw it. They arrested you and they found drugs on you. Well, Luckily, they made a little mistake at, on the, in the interview and I brought him undone. And a jury in the county court found me not guilty. And you say to yourself, unrepresented man proves police plant drugs and jury acquit him. Why doesn't that make the paper? That's, that should make the paper, shouldn't it? A man who defends himself in the county court in front of a jury and gets acquitted. Interesting. But it doesn't make the paper. What about the bashings that get... Terrible. All the bashings here scrubbed under the table. Oh, I would yes. want to, can I pick up on that, what yeah. you just said, Nico? The, the idea of why isn't that getting the paper, I think it's, really, it's a great question in the, this context. Um, of course, you might have to make that the last, the last thing. Yeah, I'm making sure. I think that there's, there's one of the significant realities of um, criminalised people, I wouldn't call them offenders, criminalised people, is there's, there's a really absence of their voice in public context. Um, people speak for them. People speak about them, people speak to them, but the actual voices of those people are rarely heard. One short example, I was on the radio with a um, very well-known policeman yesterday, um, Squeaky Clean, one of the great policemen, you know, great homicide guys. I sat with him talking in the foyer. Um, very nice picture was painted, painted of him on the radio. And I came back and spoke to the, some of the guys that we've been working in prison with and they were like, that's not the story. <laughs> that's not the story that we know about yeah. this guy. And, um, you know, regardless of who's right, who's oh. wrong, the fact is those oh, guys' story oh. of him was not on the radio. Those, those guys' story was told to me in private here. Um, but I think, you know, this opportunity to have these stories out and about is a good thing. Look, we'll finish there. Um, unfortunately, we have to finish. So uh, thank you very much and thank you again. And I think in some ways you have really provoked us thinking about within and without this system. So uh, thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you.